All right, beloved. All that fire that I had last Sunday, uh, when I read the scripture reading, I didn't get to preach. It's been storing up and burning hot, so uh, don't worry, I won't let you down. Uh, We are in Romans 14, Romans 14 through 15, actually. We're actually going to be in 15 today, but it's a whole section, Romans 14, 1 through 15, 13. I'd like you to turn in your copy of God's Word to that section. If you don't have a Bible, I'd encourage you to grab one of the blue Bibles located possibly underneath the seat around you. You can turn in that Bible to page 948. That'll bring you to uh, the section that we're looking at this morning. You know, I've titled this message, and this is part six, and we'll probably have at least two more parts, two more uh, sermons from this section. I've titled it, The Weak and the Strong Need to Get Along. They need to get along. I, you know, it's just a title, it's, and it, uh, so it has its weaknesses. It's certainly not the Word of God. It's just a title I gave to this section of God's Word. But uh, I was just looking at it, and I thought that need to get along. I want you to understand that in no way do I mean, you know, we just, they just need to play nice. You know, because that's kind of how we sometimes use that terminology, like when the kids are fighting, listen, you guys, you need to get along, which, and the kids know that means stop hitting one another and, and just play nice, but it doesn't necessarily mean what Paul is teaching here. Um, this idea of getting along really is loving one another, okay? Truly, biblically loving one another. It is, it is a love, as we've been looking at, that will enable us, as we... Uh, take this word and apply it to our own church and lives, it will enable us to live together in harmony harmony, and maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, as Paul has called us to in other places such as Ephesians. So just want to clear that up. The weak and the strong really need to love one another, and that's how they're going to get along in a way that honors and glorifies the Lord. Now, last week, we looked at uh, 13 through 23 of chapter 14, and uh, there were a lot of folks here, and, and so you may, have already, you may have been here, but let me just remind you in case you, uh, well, if you were here, I'm reminding you. If you weren't, this will be new to you, but just a brief summary. Really, it's the strong Christians were, are being exhorted in that section by Paul uh, to be careful not to cause the weak Christians uh, to suffer spiritually, to be hurt spiritually by the strong's insistence on exercising their freedom on these matters, these uh, disputed matters, these issues of uh, what one can eat or what one uh, cannot eat or days that are observed or not observed, okay? So, and, and one writer says, for such insistence uh, for the strong violates the essence of the kingdom of God, which is to manifest love and concern for one another. So again, we're back to this idea, if they were loving one another as they had been instructed to, uh, then they would not be treating one another concerning these matters the way that they were. And so really, uh, Paul is calling them to love one another, but he gives specific instructions of how that would look in this particular situation. Now, the weak and the strong, I continue to explain to you so you understand the context and we don't rip this out of its context, make it mean something it doesn't, what's going on with the weak and the strong, who they are, and I, um, I kind of come back at this week after week, I again wrote something out that I think, again, might be helpful because, you know, that as we're trying to understand this fully. So let me again explain this and then we'll read the text. Uh, the weak, the weak in Rome the weak in faith, or those believers in Christ who were holding on to a long-held traditions derived from the Mosaic law, were, among other things, uh, because of that law, plagued with doubts about what they could legitimately eat. Okay? Even though in Christ all are set free from the ritual observances of the Mosaic law. Okay? That's the weak here. In contrast, the strong in Rome, who had a, a, a more robust or healthy understanding of their Christian freedom, were fully convinced, and rightfully so, uh, that they were free in Christ to eat whatever they wanted, and give thanks to God for it. 
Either way, the matter of what one eats or doesn't eat, uh, it's a, a non-essential uh, secondary issue, and it, it should not have been a point of contention within the body of Christ. But it in fact was, and had become a real threat to the unity of the church. And so here, and as he's been doing, beginning in 14 and now continuing in 15, he's going to continue to address this matter, and that is what's going on. And uh, we're only going to actually look at the uh, first three verses of chapter 15 today, but I'm going to read the first six because one through six is a unit. It's a unit. It goes together. So beginning chapter 15, verse 1, Apostle Paul wrote this, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just a, a side note, especially if you're looking at the ESV, which is what we use here. Verse 7 in the ESV, they have it uh, with 1 through 6. Just understand that chapter breaks and verse numbers, those are not inspired. They were added uh, by the those who... Uh, created these Bibles, and it's their uh, best understanding of where to make breaks in the text and, and maybe where the thought changes a little bit. Um, but I would move 7 with verses 8 through 13, as many other translations do. And so I believe that goes together as a unit. Just want to point that out to you. And so we'll look at that, um, well, not next time, but the next time after that, because it'll take a couple times to get through verses 1 through 6. So let's look at it. Are you ready? Mm. Okay, excellent. Let's pray for God's blessing on this, all right? Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit that takes that word and uses it to transform us into the image of Jesus Christ, to conform us more into the beautiful son that gave his life to rescue us, to redeem us, to set us free from sin and to set us on a course of righteousness and holiness. Father, now this is your word, and I pray that you take it and use it to accomplish your purposes. These are your people. This is your church. It's all you, Father. It's all about you. It's all about your son, Jesus Christ. I pray it in his name. Amen. As I've noted uh, before in verse 1, you can look back there at the text, Paul identifies himself, right, with the strong, with the strong, we who are strong, we, okay? And he, uh, he says to them, listen, we have an obligation, an obligation. It's uh, in the indicative, okay? That's just the tense that the Greek word is in. It means uh, it's, this is true of them. They are obligated. They are bound. They have a duty for what or towards what? To bear with the failings of the weak, and not to please ourselves. Another translation, a good translation, the Bible puts uh, chapter 15, verse 1 this way. Now, we who are strong have an obligation to bear the weaknesses. That's literally what the word means. Failings is another way to translate it. That's how the ESV translates it to bear the weaknesses of those without strength. That's another way to translate the weak. That's literally what the word means, without strength, not able uh, to do something, and not to please ourselves. Now, let me quickly remind you of what Paul said earlier in this letter, in chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. You can flip back to the left if you'd like and, and just uh, see it there in, in your 
Bibles. That was a section, you might remember, that I titled, Our Never-Ending Obligation. Our Never-Ending Obligation. What is that, beloved? Do you remember? Huh? Yeah, love. That is our never-ending obligation. And so let me read that to you. I just want to draw your attention to it. I'm going to connect it back here uh, to now this section in 15. Beginning in verse 8, the Apostle Paul says there in chapter 13, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Uh, Before we move on, that word owe there, that's the same Greek word translated obligation in chapter 15, verse 1. But there in 15.1, it's an indicative, this is true of you. Here, it's in the imperative, which means it's a command. It's a command. So Paul here is saying, obligate yourself or be indebted to one another in the matter of love. Okay? And he goes on, verse 9. Why? For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, this statement. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Listen, if you're ever confused, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, I've uh, given you a a definition of biblical love many times. I wonder wonder if you you could repeat it back to me. I wonder if you could do that. I wonder if I've said it enough yet. What would be a biblical, what's the biblical definition of love that I've given you? What's it start with? They know it because they actually have it on a sign in their house, see? So they see it all the time. Uh, but that's okay. What is it, Jordan, Ayla? Yes, okay, that's good. A self-sacrificing, caring commitment that shows itself in seeking the highest good of the one loved, okay? Okay, so now listen. It's a good definition, I think. Um, And I didn't make it up. I took it from someone else, so. The never, so I'm going to connect it to, the never ending obligation or debt that we are to have to love each other, Romans 13, okay, obligates the strong in this situation, Romans 15, to pursue the good of their weaker brothers and sisters in Christ. And doing this will entail, as Paul says, bearing with their weaknesses. And uh, again, their weaknesses is a reference to their, their scruples, their, their convictions in this matter that were um, concerning what they could eat or what they couldn't eat, these things that really were not um, the case any longer, but they still had these convictions concerning these matters. So that's why Paul refers to them as weaknesses. This was their conviction. Um, they, because of the law, believed that they, uh, or at least held on to, at least held on to these old traditions and practices of the food laws and also the days that they had to observe. And so for them, it was difficult for them to, to eat what the others, the strong, were, were eating or even to look upon them as they ate those things because in their hearts and in their minds, they felt on some level it was wrong for them to do that. And it was not, but they, that's what they believed because Christ had set them free from these requirements of the Mosaic law. So that's why Paul refers to it as weaknesses. Now, listen, the verb bear, right? Bear with their weaknesses. That verb, it should be understand in, in, understood in light of Paul's similar use of it in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. He uses it there as well. Here's the verse. Paul commands them to bear one another's burdens and so, by doing that, fulfill the law of Christ. Uh, That word bear is is, uh, translated in another translation of the Bible, carry, 
carry. So in the NIV, it reads this way, Galatians 6.2, carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Beloved, just to put it simply, the law of Christ is to love one another as Christ loved us. John 13.34. It's a sacrificial love. It's a, it's a giving love. It's a willful, voluntary love. It's a love that lays down its life for those it is set upon. So, this is the idea. And, and so Paul is not of that idea of bearing with their weaknesses. It's this idea of carrying their weaknesses. So Paul is not uh, commanding the strong simply to put up with or tolerate the weaknesses of the weak, okay? But instead to bear their burden with them. You get the difference? So he's not like, you know, just don't, you know, they're so silly, those, those weak Christians in the church and with their traditions and stuff that they can't let go of. Just, you know, do your best. Just try to get along, okay? And that's why I said that. It's not that idea. No, no, no. Love calls them to come alongside them and help them in and through and out of their weakness. Hmm, see? So one writer says this, uh, this does not necessarily mean that uh, this command here by Paul, that the strong are to uh, adopt the scruples of the weak. So, so Paul's not saying, listen, you know, bear their weaknesses with them. So now you have to have their same convictions concerning these things. And, and so you have to think the same way that all of a sudden you can't eat this or you must celebrate this day or so on and so forth. No. But what it does mean is that they are to sympathetically to enter into their attitudes. Another way to say that is they are to sincerely seek to understand their weaknesses. You get me? So you just don't look at them and go, oh, that's ridiculous. How foolish. Or I can't believe they're still holding on to that. Or they should be like us, superior, or something like that. Rather, they're to look on their brothers and sisters and say, why is or why do they have this position? Try to seek to understand their position. Okay? Goes on. And refrain from criticizing and judging them. Man, we are, I'm telling you. Let me ask you this way. Aren't we quick to do just that? Criticize and judge our brothers and sisters in Christ? Okay? We're quick. Now, sometimes they do need to be exhorted and admonished. But again, even in that line, as I've said before, it's to be done in love. It's not to be done from a position of superiority, but it's done because you're seeking their highest good. So you do desire them to shift from whatever wrong behavior or action or so on and so forth. But I'm just saying, this, in this situation, their brothers weren't even sinning. They weren't sinning. This was a non-sin issue. Okay? And yet they were criticizing and judging them, the strong over the weak. And, and then it goes on to say, and do what love would require toward them. That's it. Do what love would require toward them. As Paul has already made clear in this section, love would require the strong, in this case, to voluntarily refrain from exercising their freedom, their liberty in Christ, in ways that might spiritually harm their brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what love would require in this case. That's why Paul's calling him to do that. In verse 15 of chapter 14, Paul says this, For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. And we talked about this last time, remember? It was this idea that because of the way they were acting towards their weaker brothers, that their weaker brothers would feel pressure to go ahead and do something that their conscience did not allow them or feel comfortable, give them comfort or assurity that they could do. And so they would sin against, they would sin against their conscience, go against it, and sin in that matter, and they would be grieved by that spiritually and wounded. Chapter 14, verse 20, Paul says, Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of 
God. Everything is indeed clean. He understands that. That's why Paul sides with the strong, or he at least identifies with the strong. But it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. Why is it wrong? It's wrong because of love. It's wrong because of love. That's why it's wrong. That's why Paul can say that. Because that's not biblical love. One writer says this, they, the strong, he's talking about, were free. They understood it. They were convinced of this truth. And it is true. From ceremonial obligations concerning the Mosaic law. But they remained under the obligations of love. Rather than insisting on their own way, they were to be supportive of those whose faith was insufficiently robust. They just weren't there yet. Their brothers and sisters just weren't there yet. Now look back at uh, verse 1 and 2 of 15. We who are strong... have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Pause there for a second. Many translations will add the word just and not to just please ourselves or not just to please ourselves. That is possible. You could use that word. You could bring in that word. Uh, you could understand it that way or translate it that way according to the, uh, the text there, the Greek there. I think they probably want to add that because they want to make sure you understand that Paul is not calling Christians to a life of asceticism. Okay, so what is that? That is, uh, and this was very common in religious circles, still is today, but it's, uh, it's this idea that you deny yourself legitimate things, legitimate things to somehow draw closer to God or become more spiritual. So, you know, this might, again, for the monks and stuff, this included sleeping uh, on a cold, hard floor or not talking to anyone, or things that are not sinful, okay? God does not call us to, to, to give up uh, necessarily things that are, that are not sinful, or to live an ascetic lifestyle. They're a gift from him. A bed is a gift. Uh, good food is a gift. A uh, nice restaurant is a gift. You know, carpet is a gift from God. And uh, God does not call us to those, to those things. So, Again, I think maybe they're saying, listen, you know, they add the word just so you don't get confused um, and not just please ourselves. So it's, again, you're not forbidden from doing things that you like as long as those things are, are not sinful, okay? But let me read on. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. So again, let me read it. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the feelings of weak, of the weak, and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. All right? What is Paul's point? It's simply this. Christian, you need to put others first. Have you ever heard that? Right? Have you, I mean, you know, right? Joy. You know, remember that acronym? People use it for joy. So joy is uh, Jesus, others, and then you. I just like joy, Joe, actually, Jesus and others. That's probably good enough because if you're doing Jesus and others, you, you'll be taken care of. You'll be okay, all right? So Joe's good for me, Jesus, others. Uh, but then you remove the joy part and it's not cool anymore, I guess. But um, So what is Paul's point? It's to, it's to put others first. That is, you need to put the interest of others before your own. This is love, beloved. In other words, love your neighbor, right? Love your neighbor. Love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Love the weak in the church. Commit yourselves. Commit yourselves even when it will cost you something or require you to deny yourself. Yeah, you may have to deny yourself. Commit yourself to them, to helping them in their walk with God, to seeing them grow spiritually, to building them up in the faith. Be sincerely concerned about and committed to the spiritual 
profit of your brothers and sisters in Christ. So much so that you are willing to make personal sacrifices for it. Paul didn't say all that, but that is what Paul's saying. One writer says this, the point is, verse 2, that we must constantly seek to do what is for the good of others rather than what is for our own good. The strong must respect the weak. They must not hurt them. And at all times, they must strive for what is for their good. Why? Because of love. Now, that author goes on to say, and I think this is worth noting, and I kind of alluded to it earlier, goes on to say, a genuine concern for the weak will mean an attempt to make them strong by leading them out of their irrational scruples so that they too will be strong. See, I don't, I don't think Paul's saying, no, you just leave them in that state. But what he's addressing here is how they're approaching them in this matter, how they're dealing with them. It wasn't in love. It wasn't careful. It wasn't uh, cautious. It wasn't seeking their best. It wasn't patient. It wasn't long-suffering. It was just, you guys have a problem. It's your problem. You need to figure it out. But you're ridiculous, you know? So just get with it. You should eat like us. And again, you know, we have these, we don't have that eating thing, right? In the in a 21st century church, not really. But you just need to draw out the bigger implication here of how we treat one another, how we care for one another. Are we doing it in love? Are we patient? Are we long-suffering? Are we merciful? Do we care about the other's good? And so much so that I'm willing even to lay down my liberties or freedoms in Christ for a time, if need be, for the good of my brother and sister who is maybe weaker in an area or, of such, or has a conviction concerning a certain matter. Now, but including in that would be the idea that I would help them understand their freedom that they have in Christ. But I would do that in a way that's right, according to love. Another writer goes on to say, this upbuilding of the weak will doubtless include helping to educate and so strengthen their conscience. Okay? So, as, you know, as I said before, uh, you know, there's things, we don't, we don't probably have the whole eating, drinking thing, or even sometimes the observance of days in some ways, but... Uh, I don't know, there's folks that are, uh, have a con- conviction that you shouldn't celebrate Christmas in any way. And so, again, I'm, I, like I told you, I wouldn't take that person. Uh, they, they don't celebrate Christmas in the sense of the trappings of, like, trees and lights and because they uh, just have this uh, conviction that it's pagan and they don't want to offend God. And I'm going to tell you that I, we have freedom in Christ as Christians to celebrate Christmas and you know, as long as you don't bring the tree in and bow down and worship to it, then, and that would be wrong and sinful, and we'd have to address that. Uh, oh, Christmas tree. You can't sing that song. That's wrong. Oh, Christmas tree. I'm kidding. I mean, even that. I mean, but, but I wouldn't take that person to a Christmas tree farm and go, you know, you should buy a Christmas tree. You should really get into the spirit, man. What's wrong with you? You see what I'm saying? That's a different, that's a different approach. But I would certainly care for my brother and, 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 and pray for them and, and let the Holy Spirit work in their lives so they come to the place where they understand they have freedom concerning these things. Um, it's just the approach, beloved. You can see, you'll see it right away. Uh, without love, the approach destroys with love, the approach builds up. Verse 3. Here's the good part. For Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. We're going to get to that second part. Actually, I decided I had it for this week, but I cut it because I want to end on uh, the first part. And I'll come back next week and we'll pick up right there. But let's talk about that first thing. For Christ did not please himself. Beloved, no greater example could be given 
than that of Jesus Christ. For everything about Christ, his coming into this world, his life and his death, all of it points to the fact that he set the interest of others before his own. It is categorically and unequivocally the case that Christ did not please himself. Huh? Yeah? One writer says Paul's instruction is, quote, grounded on the example of Christ who did not please himself, but gladly, gladly accepted whatever self-denial his mission required. Self-denial. That's not a, a term the world enjoys. Huh? Get all you can get. Live it up. YOLO. <laughs> I think that means you only live once. I think, yeah, it's an acronym. Um, hey, beloved, disciple of uh, Christ, uh, follower of Jesus, let me ask you something. Just a quick question as we're considering, considering these things. Are, are you, are you, just... Ask yourself, let the Spirit of God convict you concerning these matters. Are you striving by the power of the Holy Spirit, because you're not going to do it in your own power, are you striving by the power of the Holy Spirit that indwells you to deny yourself for the sake of others? Like for the person sitting next to you. Like for those sitting around you. Are you striving to set the interest of others before your own? Two, to biblically love one another. Are you? And you ask yourself, don't walk away from the sermon without doing self-examination. Otherwise, what's the point? Let that word of God have its way with you. Invite it in and let it root out all of your selfishness and self-interest and self-centeredness that we all Share in because of our fallenness. Let it root it out, beloved. Let the word of God do its work. As I said, everything about Christ confirms the fact that he did not please himself. Beginning with his incarnation. You know this passage, probably you've read it before. Consider the words of Paul in Philippians chapter 2. We'll read it, verse 1 through 8. So if there is any encouragement in, in, in Christ, any, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Here we go. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be held on to, but rather emptied himself. He, it means he temporarily set aside his heavenly glory and the, and the independent use of his divine attributes by taking the form of a servant, the king, took the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ did not please himself, beloved. One writer says this, although 
he being in very nature God, had the greatest right of all persons to please himself. Huh? Yes? Yes. Yet he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped for his own advantage, but first emptied himself of his glory and then humbled himself to serve. <laughs> that's, our, that's our Savior. That's our Lord. Uh, Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich, rich, spiritually wealthy. One writer, MacArthur, in his, his study Bible, he comments here, he, he became poor. He, he comments here, he says, he left his place with God, took on human form, and died on a cross like a common criminal. Why? Why? That you might become rich. Beloved, he, he set the interests of others before his own. Christ did not please himself. You with me? You with me? Huh? How about the purpose of his life? He tells us what it is. Very common passage that we were familiar with. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. He was incarnated. He came into this world for what reason? For even the Son of Man came not to be served, which he deserved to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Beloved, Christ did not please himself. And that's what Paul is drawing the readers of this Roman letter to. He's saying, hey guys, woo You know, followers of Jesus, that one you say you're a follower of, he didn't please himself. He gave himself in the interest of others. Do you remember... You know, it's like, and, and, and think about this, think about this. Of all the people who had a right to live for his own interest, to please himself, was it not the king of kings? Who are you and I? Compared to him, no one. But we want to take to ourselves. oh no, I'm not going to deny myself for them. See, that's kind of what the strong were doing. I'm not going to, I have this freedom in Christ. They just need to get with the program. Oh, okay. Yeah. Good thing Christ didn't act that way. Good thing he didn't think that way. Good thing he was willing to lay down his life for the sake of others. Good thing. You know, during his earthly life, Jesus is recorded as saying this in, in a couple places in John. In John 4, 34, he said this. Jesus said to them, Hey, my food, my main concern, my main priority is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He's talking about his father, God the Father. Then in John chapter 8, verse 29, he says this, And he who sent me, that is the Father, is with me, and he has not left me alone, for I always, I love this, do the things that are pleasing to who? To him, to him. Jesus Christ did not please himself. As one writer put it, he gave himself in the service of his Father and of human beings. And thank God he did. And beloved, that service came at an incredibly great cost. You think about this. Okay, what does the strong have to do to help their weaker brothers and sisters through this process? I don't know. Give up some ham for a little bit. <laughs> Do you see how ridiculous this is? Really? I don't know. Show some patience.
I want to share something that came to mind when I was studying this passage, and it's recorded in Matthew 26. Just this uh, passage popped into my head. On the eve of his crucifixion, Jesus was praying to his Father. You might remember, right? In the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, It is there that he prayed, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. That's uh, chapter 26, verse 39. Matthew goes on to tell us in verse 42, uh, he prayed a second time and said this, My father, if this cannot pass, it's on the eve of his crucifixion. He knows, he knows, he knows what's going to happen. He knows what he faces. My father, this cannot pass unless I drink it. Your will be done. He did not please himself, beloved. And then picking up the story from there, Matthew 26, verse 43. This is what's recorded in that gospel. And again, he came and found them, it's his disciples, they were with him, sleeping. He had asked them to stay up with him, and it was late, but he asked them to stay up and to pray. Uh, but they were asleep. He says, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and he said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners and you can almost just picture that he knows who's, he can see the, the horde coming, the, the Roman guard with, with Judas. He knows, here they come up the hill, he knows what's about to happen. 46, rise, let us be going, see my betrayer is at hand. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priest and, and the elders of the people. 48, now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. That's our Peter. (laughs) (laughs) Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. 53. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. How many is that? Uh, That's 72,000. So, yeah, you really don't need more than one angel if you've read the Old Testament. One's enough. Uh, I don't know what you showed me the other day. Was it on Facebook or something? Oh, it was awesome. But it showed uh, these men. I mean, like, like, you know, they were in, they were in angelic form. They had these gigantic wings spreading wide and just massive, like, wow, right? Men, and they were kind of all coming down there in a formation, and I don't even know what it said. Okay, all we were commenting on is the depiction of that. It was strength and power, baby, you know? And I said, yeah, that's that's angelic. Because, you know, when angels visit people, they freak out. So that's why, you know, the whole uh, cherub baby angels, I used to collect them and stuff, right? They're cute. They're cute. But that is not an angel. I'm just telling you. Or, or like the female angel that comes down and she's so feminine and flowy. I'm just sorry. I'm sorry, guys. The angels are strong and powerful and mighty. 72,000 I could call right now. I only need one to wipe out the whole continent, but I can call an army of them. 54, but how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? (laughs) That it must be so. Listen, beloved, I've said this before, and I, I believe it's worth repeating. 
Jesus was not a victim. And, and, I, and I mean that in the sense that, okay, he was not a helpless person who succumbed to his circumstances or someone who just got in over his head and, and got himself killed, arrested and tried and killed. If he wanted to avoid all the pain and suffering he knew he was about to face, he could have easily appealed to his father to send him an army of angels to come to his aid. But he didn't. He didn't. Why? Because he came to do his father's will, and according to that will, he came into this world not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many, which is exactly what the Son of God did. He truly lived a selfless life, beloved. He did not please himself. From the beginning of his life to the end of his life, as Paul said, he did not please himself. One writer, ancient Christian, wrote this. He had power, Jesus, not to have suffered what he did suffer had he been minded to look to his own things, to look to his own interest. Commenting on uh, verse 3 on Romans 15, that, that statement, he did not please himself, One writer says this, the words Christ did not please himself are a remarkable understatement for his marvelous and wholehearted self-sacrifice in the interest of sinners. I've said this before too, you know that bracelet was real popular for a while, what would Jesus do, what would he do? You're supposed to ask yourself that question, I guess, when you get into different circumstances. I've said before, I'll say it again, I think a better question is to ask, what did Jesus do? What did he do? Look at his life. Look at his incarnation. Look at his death. What did he do? And then draw from that the implications for your life. He lived a selfless life. He put others First, and that, that is what Paul calls his friends in Rome to consider. That really ends it all right there. In light of that, it demonstrates their lack of love for one another, their care, their selfishness, their self-centeredness, when they, when they hold themselves up against the manifest love of Christ. Now, I was just thinking about this. Wow, I mean, just to have that statement on your life, Christ did not please himself. Can you imagine on my tombstone? Here lies Jeremy Bryan, beloved husband, father, hopefully. Uh, what else am I? Yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> Pastor, oh, that's right, I forgot about that one. <laughs> hopefully. Um, but, uh, you know, all that, whatever, okay. Can you imagine? Here lies Jeremy Bryan. He did not please himself. I wish that was always true. Love, let me close with this. This is this is the power of the gospel in the Christian's life. We talk about this a lot. We talk about preaching the gospel to yourself, right? Uh, what is the gospel? I mean, we could talk about a lot of things. In a nutshell, it is, the gospel is a person. It is the good news of Jesus Christ. Certainly, his death, his resurrection. But you must, under all that, consider who is this person. And even in that death and resurrection, what does it communicate? It communicates he did not please himself. It communicates love and mercy and patience and and faithfulness, all of these things. So as I, as I preach the gospel to myself, as I remember, as I recall the truths of this one, this Savior, all that he did and all that he is, I am convicted 
of my sin, my unrighteousness, my unholiness before this great one. But I am not condemned. I am not thrown into the pit. But I cry out to my God and I confess my sin as I preach the gospel to myself. And then I call upon and rely upon the strength of the one who indwells me, the Holy Spirit, the one that was given to me as a gift to live out this new life I have in Christ. And what is this new life supposed to look like? Like Christ. It's supposed to look like Jesus. I, God is slowly methodically conforming me to the image of him. But how do I know what that is? I preach the gospel to myself. I see in this one he did not please himself. So in my day-to-day affairs, and in my interactions with my friends and my family and strangers and at my workplace and in the church place and in my community, here is something that I can recall again and again. He did not please himself. And so when love calls me to deny myself, to set aside my interests for the sake of another, I remember my Lord. He did not please himself. And he has called me to follow him, to live for him. And he has not left me powerless to do that. So I will rely on him to do that very thing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, your word, wow. I just pray for us as a body of Christ, Lord, just, oh. I pray we just kind of tear down all the stuff that we like to put up so your word doesn't get through it. Even the distraction of the mind, we, we sometimes are not disciplined and we allow our minds to just continually wander as we come under the word of God. Oh, Father, help us, all of us, not to do that. May this, uh, may verse 3, may it ring within our minds and our hearts over and over again. He did not please himself. He did not please himself. And may that be the basis. But why? Because of love. Because of love. And may that be the basis for us as we we live out our lives and live among one another. Lord, help us. We have the power. Those who have been set free in Christ. Those who have been rescued from the power of sin. We have the power. Father, I just pray we would rely on the Spirit of God, your Spirit that dwells inside of us to live out this life. Father, we are uh, at times a messed up bunch. We hurt each other, we wound each other, we're so self-focused. Help us repent of that, Lord. May we repent of that. Always being and repenting of that that we might be conformed to the image of our Lord and Savior, our sweet, precious Lord and Savior, who did not please himself. It's in his name we pray. Amen.